Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cathedral of St. James podcast. The conversation you're about to listen to was led by Sheila Raman McCabe on queer theologies and LGBTQ plus readings of the Bible. Sheila is a member of the Cathedral of St. James and a PhD candidate in the Department of English at the University of Notre Dame. Her research includes Old English and Middle English language and literature, multilingualism, philology, postcolonial theory, critical race theory, monstrosity, and medievalisms. This conversation was part of our Fall 2021 series titled Reading the Bible from the Margins. Inspired and guided by Miguel de la Torre's book, Reading the Bible from the Margins, this series is ultimately about the spiritual discipline of listening. While many of the church's readings of the scriptures have been focused on perspectives at the center or from places of power and privilege, De La Torre challenges us, the church, to the spiritual discipline of listening to perspectives that are often ignored, readings from the margins of society. Readings of the Bible from the margins of society reveal that, ultimately, the Bible is a text of hope and a God whose essence is the liberation of all who are oppressed. We hope you enjoy the following conversation. Thanks for listening. Um, all right, so hi, everybody. For anyone who doesn't know me, I'm Sheila. Today we're going to be talking about um, what I have here as queer theologies and LGBTQ readings of the Bible. Um, so this series in general, we've been talking about um, reading the Bible from the margins um, and the center. And so today uh, we're going to be talking about this specific community um, and readings of the Bible, both from the center against uh, the LGBTQ community and how the LGBTQ community has um, like reclaimed the Bible. Um, so the first thing that I want to say is that some of you might be um, unfamiliar or put off by the word queer, um, and that's something that we're going to talk about a little bit um, towards the middle of the presentation, but I just wanted to address it right away. Um, yes, it used to be a slur, um, and so a lot of you may be familiar with it um, as a derogatory word. Um, in the 1980s, um, it was reclaimed by the community. Um, and a lot of, not, not all, um, because no, no group is a monolith, so there are still some LGBTQ people who are uncomfortable with the word, but in general, the community has reclaimed it, and a lot of people self-identify uh, with the word queer, um, but I completely understand people still being uncomfortable with it. Um, that's totally fair and valid and understandable, um, so please use whatever terminology you are comfortable with. Um, the way I'm using it in this presentation, LGBTQ and queer are interchangeable. Um, so whatever word um, makes sense to you and feels good to you, uh, please use that. Um, so the outline of the presentation is that we're gonna start with uh, perspectives from the center um, because I think a lot of us are familiar with how the Bible has been used against this community. We're not gonna spend a lot of time on that, um, but I think it's, it'll be good to ground us. Um, and then we're gonna move on to what, um, the theological community calls queer theologies and talk a little bit about what that means, how it relates to the other theologies that we've been talking about um, in this series. And then uh, we're gonna move on to uh, queer readings of scripture um, and get to dig into some passages. Um, so um, as far as the center, um, we're all probably unfortunately familiar um, with how Bible verses has, have been used by um, like, uh, heterosexuals and cisgendered people um, against the LGBTQ community. First of all, does everybody know what the word cisgender means? It's totally fine if you don't. No. Okay. Um, what gender? It's called cisgender, C-I-S, uh, yeah. and then gender. Okay. Um, it just means that um, you identify with the gender you were assigned at birth. So like I was assigned female at birth and I still identify as a woman. So therefore I am cisgender. If um, somebody was assigned female at birth, but now identifies as a man, um, they're transgender. Um, or if you're gender nonconforming. So I'm cisgender. Yes. Okay. Um, so anybody who. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, last time I had to remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, like I grew up with um, hearing a lot of passages used by Christians um, against the LGBTQ community. Um, I'm sure a lot of us have. Um, and I think we're all familiar with how um, this is a really important issue in churches and that churches split like our own in 2009. 
And so while there are only a handful of places in the Bible that explicitly address uh, homosexuality at all, and I really do mean a handful, there are very, very few, um, there's a long tradition of weaponizing them. Um, so these texts have come to be known as texts of terror. Um, that word um, is borrowed from Phyllis Tribble, who's a feminist uh, theologian, and um, she used it to talk about uh, places in the Bible where women are subordinated and there's violence against women. Um, but um, it's been adopted by the LGBTQ community to talk about uh, homophobic and transphobic passages as well. Um, so could I get a volunteer uh, to read um, those three biblical passages um, that are in that first section? Go ahead. Patrick. <laughs> Uh, you shall not lie with uh, a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. If a man lies with a male as a, with a woman, both of them have committed a, an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Leviticus 20.15 For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for, uh, for, un, uh, for unnatural and in the same way, also, the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received their own persons due to the penalty of their error. Romans 1, 26 to 27. I think I have a typo in there. Um, but um, so I just wanted to um, like gather your thoughts. How do you feel when you hear these passages and, and how have you seen these passages used by those in the center. I think as a young person, as a high schooler reading this, it was just a puzzle. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really didn't know exactly what it was about, especially the learning from Romans. Right. And all that kind of stuff. And I think over the years, I would think we use the cherry pick. Well, the Bible says it's wrong. You know, yeah. you try to get into a conversation about it. But, yeah, so what? The Bible says lots of things are wrong. And do them anyway. And I don't even believe it's been wrong, but there you go. And, and the Bible also, you have to, at least the way I grew up with the Bible, the biblical interpretation is you have to, much of it you have to put into a political context. Right. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. So there, there, there are, it is possible to believe that we need to live by the Bible and to understand that the Gospels were written by four different mm -hmm. people for four different audiences to to, to ascribe, you know, to to, to yeah. different truths and facts, and that Paul is not the Gospel. Oh, Paul is not. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, that they were written in historical context, and also from people who were in their own way from the center as well. True. Oh, yeah, there's that point too. This historical context, especially in the context of the Roman Empire, is going to have a little bit to do with Roman prejudices against uh, homosexuality in general. And they would occasionally go through phases of we have to return to our old values, and they would crack down on such things. So, depending on the time that this was written and what, was, what else was going on in the empire, it may have been you know, a callback to some of their older morals, and they might have been trying to reinforce some of their uh, laws. Not saying they're right to do it, but that may have been politically what was going on at the time. And they would also usually crack down on things like sex work and uh, just other various more progressive things that were happening at the time. Um, not that sex yeah. was necessarily that progressive at the time, but you know, women earning money and not being at home having kids might, you know, ruffle feathers. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for that point, Mackenzie, because but that's similar to what happens today, right? It's it's people going back to what they think are traditional values and like our sign friend or um, any number of people um, that we've heard using these with very literal interpretations, um, and um, we we see them causing harm, right? So, like um, one of the best examples are conversion camps, which use a lot of these passages to um, like forcibly convert people and like kind of brainwash them out of their sexuality or gender identity, but, right? You know, like like Tamis has said, pick and choose. Right. Of those people, I wonder how many enjoy pork chops. Right. No, absolutely. Um, I, I don't think that this is right. Um, I, I just wanted to ground us in, in what the center sometimes does. Also, but you know, right from where we sit right now in both in our diocese and the Episcopal Church, we can say, you know, we're very open and welcoming to the church. 
However, over half of us in this room have seen the progression of the church, you know, through the, through the national church, through general conventions, general convention votes, and those are just in the conventions that I know Brian's attended, as well as in this diocese of moving from um, being openly gay to being a very, you could not attend seminary, you could not be ordained to the first, you know, first ordination of an openly gay bishop to, to actual inclusion for marriage equality. And that's something that has happened in my lifetime. So right. actually exactly. in my adult in my adult lifetime. So it's it's you know we're this is all still occurring yes. for sure. Yeah. No, I, I think that we're very lucky to live in a community where um this isn't necessarily the center here. Like this isn't, um, you know, the what you get preached to you, like uh, when when we go to church. Um, but um, it's very recent, um, yeah. and so I think that bears remembering, and that it's it's still happening today. Like um, there there are people who are growing up in traditions um, that are still violent like that. Um, but so how did we get from point A to point B? Um, how did we um, move to being more inclusive? And how do we talk back to readings um, that are still taking these literally? Um, that comes from a branch of theology called queer theologies. Um, so these um, were inspired by um, and informed by liberation theologies, uh, much like the gay rights movement was inspired by and informed by the civil rights movement. Um, so just because I know people have been um, in and out of these sessions, and this was like a month ago. Uh, does someone mind uh, just summarizing quickly what liberation theologies are? Go ahead. <laughs> well, the, uh, liberation theology is uh, thinking about theology. Um, it's like I written down because I probably want to remember this. Liberation of or, uh, is thinking about theology from the uh, liberation of uh, in the terms of how you use theology for the liberation of oppressed people, while also liberating theology from the center. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for. I have said that before. Yes. So I, I just, I, I just, I, I forget to write it. Like I wrote it down this time, so it was asked yes. again. I just, I just saw you write that down this morning, so that's why I'm chuckling. Um, but, um, I had a plant in the audience. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so it's it's uh, theologies about liberation, um, like in the Bible, but also liberating the Bible from um, traditions that would manipulate it, right? Uh, for the purposes of things like white supremacy and classism and things like that. Um, so we're going to see in a second that it's very much the same with queer theologies and how the word queer works. Um, so while queer used to be a word used against the LGBTQ community, it was reclaimed by many in the community in the 1980s. So as an act of taking power away from that word um, as something to oppress, uh, people have said, no, we're here and we're queer. Um, and then uh, this was further solidified in the 1990s, um, which saw the emergence of queer theory in the academy. Um, in across a variety of disciplines. Um, and so queer theory is kind of famous for using really confusing um, and dense language because it comes from post-structuralist uh, theories, which are famously confusing. Um, but basically what it is, um, is that it disrupts long-held notions of binary gender and sexual identities. And by um, disrupting those binaries, um, it destabilizes systems of power and control that enforces those binaries. So binaries being like, there's only male and female, there's only homosexuality and heterosexuality and homosexuality is the bad end of that spectrum. So rather than saying that there's only two, it disrupts those categories and says that no, there's spectrums and neither side of these are, are bad or good or have any like moral value. Um, and, and it celebrates the fact that they're is ambiguity um, and that there is diversity. Um, so this led many academics to think, think in terms of queering. So uh, they've turned it into a verb. You can queer something. Um, and when you queer something, you destabilize that thing's established traditions and turn them upside down. Uh, so queer can be a really expansive uh, term. Um, you can destabilize pretty much anything. And some people do um, use it in that expansive way. Uh, but almost always um, it's rooted in disrupting gender and sexuality. 
Um, so by that logic, then, queer theology disrupts the tradition of Christianity, including the Bible, to reveal binary notions of sexuality and gender and show how it has marginalized the LGBTQ community. So just as liberation theology, both liberate the show talk about liberation and liberate the Bible, queer theologies um, show queer readings of the Bible and also queer the Christian tradition. Um, so there's countless different kinds of queer theologies, just like there's countless different kinds of liberation theologies. They don't all agree and they don't all have the same goals. Um, some work really closely alongside traditional uh, theological methods, um, while some really radically um, depart from and subvert traditional methods. And I have a nod to uh, Marcella Althaus Reed in here, um, who is a foundational queer theologian, um, a very early one too. Um, and she has a book called Indecent Theology. Uh, so she thinks she's not using indecent as um, in a derogatory way. She's saying we need to be indecent um, in order to subvert these hierarchies. And her theology is really, really interesting. Highly recommend reading her work. Um, but it is very radical um, and very, very different. Um, but across the spectrum, a common thread among these is transgressing societal norms about uh, sex and gender in order to allow LGBTQ Christians to reclaim their faith in ways that are meaningful to them. So that should always be the goal is for LGBTQ Christians um, to not be alienated from their faith, to see themselves in their faith, to, to deepen their faith. Um, and so I just like this quote, true theology does not seek to offer answers to questions, but it offers creative, innovative, and empathic approaches to queer interpretation of scripture. So that was a lot of information just threw at you. Um, it's um, a really deep and, and rich field and I, it was hard to put it into a nutshell. So I just wanna like give space for any questions, comments, concerns anybody has. Um, if there's anything people wanna to add to the discussion or anything people want clarified. Um, that's really a, a pivotal change in education. Yeah. Where so often we wanted to give the right answer, and that's what people are seeking. And then uh, they're very frustrated when we say, well, there's actually various opinions or various ways of understanding this and being, I'll say, even in the mainstream. Right. And so it's interesting that, that I thought, think it's interesting to use that phrase of not seeking to answer questions. Yeah, absolutely. And the capacity to be in a place where we're willing to not be grabbing on to answers that are going to validate us to being in a place where we can throw out a lot of different stuff and say, oh, oh that's interesting. Let me see what I think about that. It's a big deal, really. Well, because we like everything, especially the church. We all the answers that we think here are and like from my like that same point like it's also important to know that like one of the things that is a struggle in education both in theology and in just education in general is the idea of like these set answers which then causes a lot of students to struggle in like a lot of ways because they have this idea of no there's a right and wrong answer Meanwhile, what we should be doing as Christians, as teachers, should be teaching them how to ask questions and how to engage and learn how to ask questions better because that will lead them to a much more fulfilled path of education. And, and, and with that said, I, I believe the key word that Patrick used was engage. Yes. Where they can discuss and listen and learn mm -hmm. and, and possibly agree to disagree politely. Mm -hmm. And not not be mad at each other as the conversation is over, right? Or, or close for a moment, over, over to to at least for the high school students. That that is my experience. Yeah, to learn to just sit in that tension of we don't have to just we don't have to agree. There can be multiple and, and ideas. Conversation into a later day. Yes. And also in a, in a similar sense, in the way that we kind of in like a way to help maybe open people up to queer readings. Um, also make it very clear, like, just because you might not have the, like, even if it's like you have the wrong answer, 
not seeing that as an inherently like in the binary aspect of if you are wrong, you are bad. In the sense of now it's like if you're wrong, that doesn't necessarily mean you're bad. It means that you have the opportunity to grow and learn. It's not about it's you didn't have the information. So a clear understanding of it is also about the growth aspect of that as well. Yeah. And um just the offering uh offering questions instead of answers and there being ambiguity and things like that, that is something that is very fundamental to queer theory. Um, but it's also something that, um, at least in my experience, is something very fundamental to theology. Um, so like in our EFM discussions, we talk about having questions instead of answers, um, and that there isn't a right answer. And so that has led um, a lot of queer theologians to say that Christian theology has always been queer that Christianity has always been queer because it exists in those, um, like in that uncertainty um, and, and searching for questions and there never being a right answer. Um, so awesome, thank you guys. Um, so again, there's lots of different ways to do queer readings, um, but one model that I really liked um, is by um, a theologian named Darren Guest um, and it's called the four R's. Um, and those R's are resistance, rupture, reclamation, and re-engagement. Um, so just to quickly go through these, um, resistance um, involves being suspicious of presumed heterosexuality and cisgender of biblical characters and their relationships. Um, so this is something that we encounter in our everyday lives too. Like our default is just kind of to assume that everybody is heterosexual um, and cisgender. Um, and that's exactly what the power structures want, right? Because that marginalizes people who have different sexualities and different genders. Um, and so that um, extends to our reading of the Bible and our reading of everything really, where we just kind of assume that uh, people um, are the dominant, uh, or from the dominant group. Um, but even though the terms heterosexuality and cisgender are fairly new um, in terms of history, um, as practices, they've always existed. Um, and so it, it is actually um, like a really big assumption to assume that everything you're reading, including in the Bible, um, is from those dominant categories. Um, so even just by being suspicious of that, um, that's already resisting traditional um, theologies that have been harmful. Um, Another concept is rupture. Um, so that's kind of what we've been talking about and what we've been doing in this whole series, examining how religious institutions and traditions have drawn upon certain biblical texts to enforce a binary of heterosexuality and homosexuality, and often one at the expense of another. Um, so maybe the, the actual text doesn't necessarily lead to um, this homophobic or transphobic reading, but the tradition that's deeply ingrained does. And so rupturing that tradition, going off in a different direction with your interpretation, um, disrupts, um, disrupts and queers uh, Christian tradition. Um, and so we're gonna see that. A lot of these categories blend into each other, kind of a process that flows yeah. uh, one into each other and back. Um, so both of those things, resistance and rupture, can lead to reclamation. Um, so one of the ways that um, you can rupture the tradition um, is by like reclaiming a narrative and making it relevant to like a queer person's life, right? Um, so a lot of queer people read like the Exodus narrative, which we're used to seeing interpreted as a spiritual metaphor, right? Um, so a lot of queer people um, interpret that as like not just a spiritual metaphor, but one specific to coming out. So when you're closeted, right, um, you're almost um, like you're chained, right? Like you're chained in your mind um, to somebody, to being somebody who you're not. Um, and it's very, very painful to be closeted. But also in some situations, it can be life-threatening to come out. Um, and so this Exodus narrative um, becomes, um, like the quote here, um, it's from a theologian named Mona West, coming out, crossing over the boundaries of silence and homophobia, in doing that, gay and lesbian Christians come home to God, because they're able to be who they are. Um, and so reclaiming this narrative um, that has had other theological interpretations for specifically queer life um, is part of what queer reading is about. Um, and then finally, re-engagement. Um, is just a call for queer readers to study the actual text themselves and question existing translations. So um, like we've been doing a lot of this work in this series um, in 
we had a summer book study, how to read the Bible um, in EFM years one and two, just questioning certain translations of words uh, that have been overdetermined uh, by centuries of translation. Um, and that those words are actually a lot more nuanced. Um, there's historical context that shows us that what's in the Bible isn't literal. Um, and um, all the things that we were talking about at the beginning, um, once you go back and wrestle with a text yourself, um, those can lead to new and freeing readings. Um, so engaging with the text yourself. Um, so do any, any questions about those four strategies or anything? I feel like it's things that we practice all the time, like in adult form itself and, and things that we've been doing uh, over these past few weeks. Um, so we can use these strategies um, to close read biblical passages uh, and produce clear readings. So finally, we get, we get to talk about scripture. Um, <laughs> sorry, that, that just needed a long introduction. Um, because even though these, um, these ways of reading are really related to what we've been doing, um, I feel like there are some important differences from the talk on race that we've been doing. Um, and so I just wanted to give everybody uh, the background. Um, so thank you for bearing with me. Um, so I actually wanna go back to the um, passages that we read in the beginning. Um, those scripture passages have often been used to justify homophobia as we've seen, and especially in the campaign against same-sex marriage. Um, there are a lot of arguments as you guys talked about, um, like about why these, like reading them that way is problematic um, and not entirely accurate. Um, it can be anything from, you know, there are certain words uh, that have more nuance that aren't reflected in the translations. The fact that the functions of these laws was creating an Israelite identity distinct from the Canaanites. And so it wasn't necessarily all like done in practice. It was more just a nation building exercise. Um, and as, as uh, Celeste said, we don't practice a lot of these laws in the modern day. And so why choose these rather than, you know, mixed fibers or any of the laws on food? Um, those are all really, really important studies um, and really important uh, concepts for, for people to understand. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily give us positive views of same-sex marriage. What it does is show how the negative views are misinformed. Um, but still, like as an LGBTQ person, you wanna go to the Bible and be able to see yourself. You wanna be able to, to see something validating to you as a person. Um, so queer theologians have looked to other places in the Bible to find these more positive views. Um, and depictions of same-sex love, which may resonate with queer readers. Um, so I have two passages, one from 1 Samuel and one from Ruth. Um, does someone mind reading those aloud first? Oh. So starting with the two quotes. Yes. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself, 1 Samuel 20, 16 to 17. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. When you die, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me, Ruth 1, 16 to 17. Thank you. Um, so I want us to, to talk about these and discuss these, but just as a brief preface, preface to that. Um, so we don't typically look at these as um, like same-sex relationships. Um, we, we don't think of them like romantically. Um, and there's no explicit sexual element in either of these relationships. And scholars aren't implying that we should like over-speculate that there is one. Um, you know, they're, they're not asking us to um, say there's something there that there isn't evidence for. But that being said, there's a deep emotional bond and an intimacy, um, statements of love and commitment between um, two people um, of the same sex. And actually that Ruth passage is used in heterosexual marriage ceremonies a lot, uh, which is really interesting. Um, and these can resonate with queer Christians and their experiences of love and be very validating. Um, so I wanna know what you all think of, of reading those passages in that light. Um, and if you think that these kinds of readings can resist, rupture, reclaim, re-engage any of those R's. Exactly. 
Yeah. I can't hear what you said. I just said, if people don't take these two literal, why do they take these two literal? Right. If you can read into things, yes. wh why not this? Why not for a more subversive reading? Or yes, well, I, I think it's, it's, it has something to do with what you said, is that there's, these are, whether it's the writer, the author, these are a lot more explicit yeah. than these. Right. These allow uh, some, I'm going to interpret it this way, and you can interpret it that way, that's fine. Uh, but it's not so uh, open on these two. It's being false. Yeah, as Patrick said. to another thing that was a book on why basically white men don't dance. Mm -hmm. And it was, it, the assertion was basically that mid-century, mid-20th century homophobia did a real number on how white men in particular interact with the world. And part of that is absolutely how men interact with uh, other men. Right. And so all of these readings, which would, if look, no one would have looked twice at these 100 years ago or 150 years ago, but now everyone's uh, so concerned, everyone became so concerned with homosexuality and not appearing to be such right. in the mid-20th century that uh, the whole, and even fraternal love got taken wildly, got put wildly on the back burner because men had to be completely aloof from everything. Right, so. exactly. Because any kind of intimacy between people of the same sex or gender is seen as disrupting yeah. like the yeah the heterosexual patriarchy i mean almost as a kind of like a slight tangent to like bible things just think about how like batman and superman were depicted in the early 1920s or anything that tolkien wrote exactly. <laughs> yeah i'm just like like yeah. look at the, even like if we go to other things and like mm -hmm. how those deep male bonds yeah. were depicted then versus now where it's like again like no no two guys cannot be next to each other at all um yeah. because, like, and like like it almost became this whole thing where it's so anti-master no yeah no thank you and um also um to celeste's point um like i think that we also like sex doesn't need to be involved in romance to, or or really deep intimate bonds like an in intimacy and so i think that even though they're not explicit um we've just been trained as Nathan and patrick have said to not read um that kind of intimacy into these kinds of relationships anymore and so i think it can be very freeing when when you're able to really lean into that um and and say you know maybe maybe it wasn't sexual maybe it wasn't even romantic but it might be queer right to be to be able to be free to express your love this way um, and, and that would be what, what I would think what we're talking about is because it because it's open for interpretation, the Bible can speak to anyone. Yes, exactly. Um, and we, we don't have to be locked into those interpretations that have been passed down through history. It, it is fully open and it can speak to anyone, like you said. Yeah. Um, great. Um, any um, other comments? questions um any other ways that this might be resisting or rupturing okay just wanted to give space in case um so there there are lots of readings like that um and some of these are some of the readings in queer theology are just like this um which are more literary readings um and staying very true to what's in the bible what i didn't get into in this presentation just because it's a lot of information and it, it takes a lot of steps to get there um i went down a lot of rabbit holes as i was researching uh, for this presentation um but people take a lot more creative and innovative views of the bible too um and some of them can be a little bit more sexually explicit um in in ways that um some people find very freeing um and very validating um, but it's a more creative view of scripture and like rewriting scripture and reimagining scripture. Um, so I just wanted to give a nod that those exist. Um, 
and they're really, really fascinating. Um, but I just did not have the time to get into them here. Um, she told me about you. They're very interesting. <laughs> They're a little wild. Yeah, they um, are. But, um, it, it, yeah, it, I have a bibliography at the end that gets into some of them um, in case anyone is interested. Um, but um, so this is a, another way that we can, like, we've been able to talk back against people who are reading those literally. And, you know, one of the ways that we've been able to get same sex marriage uh, to be valid um, in the church. Um, but a lot of times uh, discussions of LGBTQ, the LGBTQ community can focus on sexualities and not on gender variants. Um, in fact, trans theologies are really only recently coming to light uh, because a lot of those were suppressed even within the community. Um, and there just haven't been a lot of trans theologians. Um, so a lot of them rely on talking to trans Christians who may not be like trans theologians. Um, but it's so important to get their perspective. And so I wanted to be very intentional. We want to include people who are gender variant um, because they can be marginalized even from within this community. Um, and I'm sure we've all heard um, people using the Bible against uh, people who are transgender. Um, there's a lot um, for people to argue for strict gender binaries. Um, however, a lot of queer people have used these same passages, interestingly, um, to argue for a far more nuanced view of gender. Um, so can I get, um, another volunteer? Sorry, I'm asking you guys to read a lot today, uh, to read the passage from Genesis. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Then God said, let us make an earth being in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over yeah. every creeping thing that creeps yeah. upon the earth. So God created humanity in God's own image. In the image of God, God created them. Male and female, God created them. And God blessed them. Thank you. Um, so have people used that? Have people heard that used against trans people? Right, because a lot of times the argument is, well, it says it right there, male and female, he created them. Um, and, and therefore those are the only things that exist. Um, but, um, a lot of theologians have talked back at this. Um, so especially uh, theologian and pastor, Justin uh, Sabiatanis, um, who is a trans theologian and pastor. Um, he reflects on the creation story um, in his book, Transgender Theology, Ministry and Communities of Faith. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna have you guys read one more time. Can somebody read uh, that big passage? Just the first one. Day and night are not fixed entities with clear boundaries where one ends and the other begins. Every day contains both dawn and dusk, which create a time in which day and night exist together in the same moment as one moves into the next. The tides make it difficult to see where the division of land ends and sea begins because the earth continues on under the sea and the sea rises up to cover the shore. Distinguishing plant from animal, as is the case with coral, is not always easy. In the story of Genesis, even while God is create, was creating apparent opposites, God also created liminal spaces in which the elements of creation overlap and merge. So surely the same could be said about the creation of humanity with people occupying many places between the poles of female and male in a way similar to the rest of creation. Thank you. Um, so just um, what are your thoughts on that reading and, and how it might be, um, again, before ours, resist, rupture? Your claim engaged. It reminds me of my parents mm -hmm. who, uh, daddy was 98 when he died and mother was 85. So that tells you their thought, maybe from the, the, the what uh, we were talking about earlier. I, I'll tell you the biggest thing that helped my parents become accepting of the LBGTQ community was when they knew people from that community. So when people came out of the closets mm -hmm. and became part of their church community, their office community, and that sort of thing, they embraced uh, same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. Whereas before, they had not. They said, well, we, we said, mother, that's silly. It was going to ruin their marriage. I said, how in the world is it going to ruin your marriage? What's the definition? I said, no, it, it you know, but but it was it was once they realized 
people are people and they need companionship. They need, and, and it was a wonderful transition for mama and dad. Yeah, absolutely. And yet at the Thank same you. time, they never allowed us to be a derogatory to the community. I mean, they they did a wonderful job, I guess, of recognizing people with feelings. And uh, anyway, so yeah. that, that, that reminded me of my parents. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it, it's. I'm thinking, how helpful this kind of interpretation would have been as a child yes. when you heard that kind of thing, that mm -hmm. rather than it all being set in stone. Right, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah like, yeah. like with the idea of like as a child, we have set in stone, it gets, uh, we go back to the idea of the binary aspect of it gets confusing when things don't necessarily fit within that binary as cleanly as we might make it seem it like it does in how we teach that sort of stuff. And so that in itself is something that really causes harm to children who are still learning and work, as we said, like asking questions and trying to figure out what the world is. And by understanding more about like the world as a spectrum, it's and like even explaining it in the way of like, well, there's land and sea, but there's the coast, or there's dawn, there's day and night, but there's dawn and dusk. Like that can really help, help, help. Uh, I mean, ease, ironically, ease people into these ideas of like, what does this mean? When we see gray areas as part of creation, and when we see that um, the spectrum and ambiguity is part of creation, then it becomes easier to accept. Um, you know, of course, why wouldn't it be this way with people? as well. well and, and artists will take pictures or draw or, or do paintings of dawn and dusk and they're beautiful. Right. Yes. Well, and, and I guess it's going with the same creation is that we, or many people will take the, the seven days and look at it on seven days as we have defined them. And then, but so they're taking that one literally, but ignoring the God's time is not our time. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, that, that it's, we have to, taking something that is, was written to impart truth and try to twist it around to be factual linear has done so much. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and it's the cherry picking again, like you said, um, and, and not reading with historical context and being mindful of what Genesis is. Like a lot of it is artistic and poetic language too. True, um, yeah. Right, exactly. I love that. But yeah, and, and it, it makes sense to us. Like it, it, it doesn't sound so alien when we see it laid out like this, but it's hard when you've got that tradition coming at you saying that, you know, there are binaries. Um, and so having voices like Justin Sabiotanis is really important um, because he can speak to the trans experience and particularly the trans Christian experience in a way that only trans Christians can. Um, and so queer theologies open up everybody's um, view of theology and view of Christianity. Um, and also an another argument that people have used against um, trans people and gender non-conforming people is that you are somehow changing what God has made you, right? That, you know, he made you female, but God made you female. Um, and therefore saying that you are male or saying that you are neither or that you are multiple genders is somehow changing God's creation. Um, Sabia Tanis is also able to speak back uh, to that. Um, in this last quote, um, he says, God also calls upon the first created human beings to participate in the ongoing care of creation as it continues to emerge. Part of the concept of having dominion over the earth signifies an autonomous responsibility to change and care for the created order. As transgendered people, this charge implies the need to care for ourselves and to take responsibility for our ongoing creation and development. And so discovering who you are, being true to who you are, being able to craft yourself into the person that God ordained you to be. Maybe you didn't start that way, but um, you know, you know that God made you this way. Is care for His creation, like caring for ourselves, as part of care for creation. And I also thought that was uh, really freeing. Um, that changing ourselves doesn't mean that we are going away from God. It means that we are becoming truer to what we know God's image of us to be. Um, yeah.
I mean, we even have in the Bible verses of people whose names are changed by God as a like a major, and like that is who they, they, they are becoming one more, more in line with God, and so they gain a new name. And so that is also, I, I believe you talked to me about this a while ago, but like that is also used as a yeah, like <laughs> that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. There's also the concept that gets talked about in most Christian communities of healing the fall or uh, like generally, you know, discernment as far as that call goes, especially when you consider uh, the verbiage that surrounds entering into the priesthood as well. And I think as far as questioning gender and sexuality why that that same sort of mental process still kind of applies and the journey surrounding that applies and i think that if you reframe it into a similar context it might also bring understanding to how that works too not not necessarily christian no sorry uh and in, in the roman catholic denomination Taking on different names at different junctures, like like oh, uh, 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 people entering oh. a nun. Mm -hmm. uh, another, I believe, at least in Texas, yeah. oh, that's me. Uh, they they change their names at confirmation. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then we have the that's for us. I add oh. one. Yeah. Yeah. More, more yeah. baptism to, to add a name. Okay. Absolutely. It's, it's a very common thing. Okay. Oh, wow. Well. As far as uh, accepting your body as it was made, there's only four people at this table not wearing glasses. Yeah. Or using anything artificial, it could include glasses or prosthetics. Or going behind an altar wearing something that is not. So glasses, prosthetics, canes, all would be prohibited behind the altar. I'll stay up for you. Altar girls, for you, girl. Or or whatever. Some of the reasons that was not person who has chosen to remain single all her life and not marry. I mean, those are also issues that we deal with, which are not unrelated to this. Yes, my question. Yeah, absolutely. Anything that always there's the issue of outsider and you're different and you know you're not like us and that kind of thing and there's all kinds of things that go on yeah and you know it's it's not following it's another way to not follow the kind of social imperative to get married appropriate right, right. yes um exactly um yeah these are all excellent points um and yeah i'm, I'm glad that we started talking about the names um and biblical passages um one thing that I didn't put in here because I wanted to focus it on readings of the Bible uh, to fit in with the series, um, is that there actually is in the 2018 Book of Occasional Services, a service um, for uh, renaming. Um, and so people who are taking on a new name um, can have that as like an official right. Um, and it's a really beautiful service and it, it has a lot of passages, um, like suggested readings that are from the Bible, people changing their names like Sarah um and abraham um and it, it's just really affirmative um and it, it's the whole congregation coming together saying that you are becoming who who god ordained you to be and we are all going to support you in becoming that person um so highly recommend reading that service because it's really beautiful and it shows how we can take um you know these theologies to rethink our own tradition you know we don't have to go away from liturgies and and things that we love we can just adapt them and they can change to be more inclusive um and to be more welcoming to people um we're focusing on scripture and biblical readings um but queer theologies and, and liberation theologies in general uh go far beyond that um in, in ways to imagine the trinity um you know ways to imagine the creeds uh like so many things and it's really fascinating um and so um, I put the bibliography. Um, I especially recommend uh, Patrick Chang's uh, Radical Love. Um, it's a really accessible book um, written in a way that um, 
but um, it, it's it's just a really rich field. Um, and it, it's not just good for LGBTQ Christians. Um, it, it's good for everybody like to, to open up our minds um, and new ways of thinking. Yes. That's, oh, okay. I think your last paragraph, which we haven't talked about, is actually the gender language for God is really critical. Oh yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, um, I just my eyes can go over it. Well, go ahead. I read it again, so I saw it, and I don't want to leave without mentioning. Yeah, sure. Um, no, we can we can talk about that. We still have time. Um, so I, I just put here that Sabiatanis is very careful about his use of gendered language in the Bible, um, using Earth being um, as a translation instead of mankind, and using only gender neutral words for God. Notice he doesn't use he him for God. He only uses God. Um, so how does the everyday language we use to talk about God and the Bible enforce gender or sexuality and or sexuality binaries? Just like even unthinkingly. Um, in terms of the ways we, I mean, we, we are still, we're, we're still fighting that one on during the liturgy of attempting to have gender neutral um, language within our liturgy. Yeah. The first people are particularly. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and especially when we have biblical evidence that God is neither male nor female. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's all just patriarchal interpretation coming into our translation. And, and problems with English translation. Yes. Because we don't have, we, we don't have a non-binary or a gender neutral pronoun. So yes, and, and lots of people fight they. Um, okay, we haven't had one that was, that was in um, popular acceptance from the 1979 curve. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that was enough of the battle. <laughs> Yeah. Because as as the historical linguist in the room, they was actually used as a gender neutral singular pronoun going back as far as English goes. Um so it I mean I, it, also there were a lot of efforts to really like highly standardize the English language. So while it was more fluid before, um like it it wasn't like used in the way necessarily that we're talking about using it like as gender neutral. It's just that people would use that. And, and we do that too. Like if, if you'll notice, if you pay really close attention to your language, sometimes you'll use they instead of he or she, like when you don't know, or sometimes like it, it'll just pop up. Oh, yeah. And so the language is fluid like that, but there have been so many efforts, particularly in English um, to really standardize it. And that's similar to what's going on in Leviticus. It's in like kind of, um, nation building, ethnic identity building exercise to say, well, this is English um, and it is these strict rules. Yes. So it's academics fault. <laughs> yes, <laughs> most things are. <laughs> I agree with that. Yes, um, and, and this happens in other languages too. French is um, really famous for it. They, okay. um, yeah, they very strictly police their language. They have a literal academy for it. Yeah. That's next level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so thank you guys for the discussion. I don't want to hold you hostage. Yeah, well, you're great. Thank you. Oh my goodness, thank you. Thank you.